3: Welcome everyone to today's episode of Getting in a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Val Paradis about the college admission process for students who are on the the autism spectrum. We're so pleased to have Val on the show as her expertise in working with and advising students with autism and their families is both deep and broad. She's the director of the National Autism Leadership Institute, and she also runs the Center for Integrated Self-Advocacy. And much of her work involves designing programs and curricula for children and adults who are on the spectrum. For my third and last segment, I'll be talking with Jean Mahan, finance consultant here at College Coach and former senior financial aid officer at Tufts University in Massachusetts. She and I will be discussing how to use summer jobs to help pay for college. But for my first segment, I'll be talking with Zaragoza Guerra, former admissions officer at MIT and Caltech, California Institute of Technology, and a college coach veteran. He and I will be discussing the differences and the similarities of what admissions readers look for at these two institutions. Welcome, Zaragoza. Hi, Sally.
4: Glad to be here.
3: Thank you so much for joining us today. You've got some pretty interesting expertise, having worked at both <laughs> Caltech and MIT. I think you might win the award for having worked at the two nerdiest institutions wow. in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked, hey, absolutely, listen, I worked at University of Chicago at, uh, and also at Reed. So, you uh, know, I'm, I'm pretty good on the nerd scale, but you you win. I think that you win. <laughs> so... Thank you, Dolly. Thank you. Glad to hear <laughs> you're very, that. <laughs> you're very welcome. You're very welcome. All right. So let's start. I mean, I think um, I think we can assume that our admissions are uh, that our audience today has some basic background in kind of how college admissions works, but let's let's talk about some of the similarities that Caltech and MIT have. Let's start with that, that might be a little bit different from a, a kind of typical maybe highly selective institution? Like what what made Caltech and MIT just a little bit different from those other institutions?
4: Yeah, I, I would say this, you know, they, they're just as selective as any other school out there, you know, that is on the very high selectivity index. I, I would say, you know, the main differences between um Caltech and MIT versus a lot of those other selected schools is that, you know, they do have that math and science bent, and they do have, uh, you know, their whole mission is to explore the world of math and science and, and to change the world through, through math and science and, and try to problem solve uh, things literally, um, not just figuratively, but, but, but literally. And so they are looking for those students who've got a passion for math and science, Perhaps not necessarily a student who's so focused on a particular area of math and science. I think, you know, like many other schools that are out there, many other selective schools, they are looking for some breadth as well as depth. But the breadth for a place like an MIT or Caltech might come across um, in terms of the sciences and in terms of math. Um, Maybe not necessarily so much in terms of the humanities, um, but, but definitely in terms of breadth uh, within math and science. So they're looking for those students who aren't just necessarily interested in computer science and want to just do computer science. They're looking for that kind of student who wants to do that and chemistry and physics and biology and upper-level math and, and explore those areas who've got a kind of uh, a keen interest in that. So I would say those are, are kind of the things that set them apart probably from a lot of the other selective schools uh, in the sense that they they have that niche. Uh, I'd also say, you know, from talking to a lot of my, you know, colleagues from places elsewhere, I'd say they're they're very egalitarian institutions in many respects. I'd say, you know, not only are they looking for, you know, those top math and science students, I think oftentimes they don't consider things that probably other schools might, you know, legacy doesn't factor in with their admissions processes, uh, you know they're they're simply looking for uh, students who fit the mold in terms of their institutions more so than let's say uh, trying to replicate uh, you know past history in, in that sense I would say.
3: Hmm. Hmm. So I want to go back to something that you said in terms of. Um, they want students to have a lot of breadth in math and science because I think that's really important because a lot of the students who I talk to who are interested in those schools, sometimes they're kind of narrowly focused. They, they might think science mm-hmm. and math is cool in general, but they're really mm-hmm. like, I want to do computer science and I want to work at, you know, I want to work in Silicon Valley, you know, or mm-hmm. I want to work at Microsoft. but. Mm-hmm. It sounds like MIT and Caltech are kind of like liberal arts colleges in terms of they want you to be enthusiastic about being broadly educated, and so if you're too narrowly focused, they might not be as happy with that. Is that accurate, or am I am I understanding you correctly?
4: I, I would say so. You know, if if um, you know they don't want uh, or, or, or they're not necessarily looking for someone who knows exactly what they want to do in terms of computer science. Um, and 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 so they're absolutely specializing in that. Um, you know, when you go to a place like MIT or Caltech um, and you do want to do computer science, you're going to do it and you're going to do it very well. Um, and, you know, those are places that are, that are known for that. But you're also going to have to take a lot of physics. You're also going to have to take a lot of chemistry. You're going to have to take some biology. You're going to have to take a, a lot of upper-level math. And you're going to have to take some humanities to boot. Um, I would say that, you know, probably an, an MIT or Caltech probably requires a lot of its students to take more humanities, than perhaps a liberal arts student would require its students to take math and science. So keep that in mind. They're, they're going for breadth and depth. Obviously, a lot of the, the depth is going to be in the sciences, and I'm not saying any way to perform that today. You know, when you go to, to an MIT or Caltech, like, hey, it's, it's kind of like a, a liberal arts degree. But it is in the sense that they're asking you to, to go for breadth there as well. When, when you hit the ground running, and, and as part of their core requirements. So it's not necessarily a place of absolute specialization in that respect.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's important to know. And it also says that in the application, you really want to get across... I think that love of learning, so that's actually probably just going to be a similarity with every other high-level, highly selective institution in the country.
4: Exactly. You, you know, you have to have that overall love of learning. Um, but as I said, you know, they, they do have that, that, that towards math and science. So if you are doubling up in, in math and science, you know, hey, that might be a, a nice thing that they that they would see and that they would appreciate. Um, I don't think you would necessarily do it to the detriment of absolutely everything else, uh, and absolutely specialize uh, in terms of computer science over absolutely everything else. But um, y- you can, um, and you should have, as I said, that level of overall math and science, because you're going to have to be doing uh, that while you're there.
3: Mm-hmm. I love the idea, too, that their mission is to change the world through problem solving. That's, that's pretty I lofty. love that, too.
4: You know, and I, I would say, you know, when I was at both institutions, and I always get the question, hey, what makes them different? You know, they're, they're both, uh, you know, very much alike. You know, one is the East Coast version, one is the West Coast version. But, um, you know, their, their differences are, you know, Caltech is much smaller. Um, MIT is, is much larger. And, and when you kind of break down the numbers, you know, some of the remarkable things that I always found about about both places that even though a place like Caltech be small, you know, it does big things, incredible things. I mean, it runs JPL for NASA, so it's exploring the universe out there that many other places don't don't have the capacity to do. And, you know, if you look at even the the fact that it's smallness, it's, you know, we're talking, you know, less than 1,000 undergraduate students, but Mm -hmm. it probably sends more students off to get PhDs, both in... In in percentage wise as well as in raw numbers in a lot of other places and so yeah, it's always I think coming it's, out number one on that list. Go.
3: Yeah, I think it's number one or number two. I think Harvey Mudd for sciences might be number one. Uh, not um, the, sorry, not that we're supposed to talk about Harvey Mudd today, but for
4: origins, <laughs> we're not talking. About, uh, <laughs> we're not talking about Harvey. Mudd. No, Caltech is number one. It, it's definitely number one. Um, okay, percentage wise, and then even in raw numbers, it, it's still you know, considering that it's such a small institution, it's still breaking that top 50 list. Um, okay. And, it, and it's just, just by the counts alone. And we got to remember, it's, less, it's a tiny school, um, but it does big things. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I would say, you know, that's, that's the incredible thing about those two institutions. You're always hearing about, not necessarily what was done before in the past, but what's happening and what the future is going to look like. And that's what you know. So if you're if you're one of those students who loves the future and who wants to have an impact on the future, those are two wonderful institutions to consider.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. And so, what are some of the? Um, unless there's other similarities you want to highlight, what are some of the differences that you would say between the institutions? Between the, um, you know, the admissions process uh, for the two institutions.
4: I would say I would say this. Um, you know, it's, they're both trying to do the same thing, but they might do do it a little bit differently. And I think that's probably going to be the case with every admission office. You know, there's no one standardized way of, of doing admissions. Um, I, I would probably say, you know, at a place like MIT, uh, and at a place like Caltech, you know they're trying to balance the academic profile against, let's say, what's happening outside of the classroom as well. You know, so trying to balance those numbers versus everything else. And you know, at a place like MIT, sometimes you know when you're doing a read, you may not necessarily pay so much attention, maybe to the the, the numbers absolutely, um, simply because you know they let you know a computer do that for you. So when you're doing a read, you're mostly focusing on. Um, other aspects uh, of an applicant. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't value both. It just means that when you're going into the, it's just a method of uh, of doing that. Um, and I think they kind of uh, come to some of the same conclusions as they're doing it. I think with a, with a place like Caltech, probably the reader has that in the back of their minds in terms of the numerics um, when they're you know rating a student um, at MIT and and, and even at a Caltech. You know they've got a lot of really great applicants with the numbers already, and so the numbers alone aren't what's going to get you into the institution. It might get you uh, a closer look, but it's not necessarily going to get you what's in- into the institution. You have to balance that with the other half, which is what's happening outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that when an MIT admission officer is probably doing a the read, they're probably not necessarily looking at the numbers because that kind of gets done by itself in terms of, you know, there's a computer that can do that, um, but the reader is going to take care of the, that other half. And then when they get to the admissions committee, you know, the, that's when they're reconciling both of those two things, both of those two kinds of ratings and, and, and trying to find the balance and saying, okay, we want students who are, who are going to have, do well on both areas.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and I would probably say at, at Caltech, they probably take the, uh, that all into context when, when they're doing the read as well. And then, obviously, as I said, you know, they've got so many great applicants um, that, you know, the other half is going to be taken into consideration as well. Okay. So, so it's not always about the numbers, and it's not yeah, always yeah. about, hey, changing that score here or there, because that's only half the equation, really. Right. So that's what I wanted
3: to get into. So what are some so we have about four minutes left or or three minutes, it looks like. So what are like how can students go beyond the numbers? We sort of talked theoretically that these are colleges or institutions that want to change the world. They want to see a broad love of sciences. So how can students manifest that in their application? Like how, how are they going to show that to the colleges?
4: Great question. I would say this. Find out how you can change your own world um, right now. And, and the world means we're not talking about, hey, you have to impact the entire United States. We're talking about your school. We're talking about your community. We're talking about uh, your local chapter of X, Y, or Z. Okay, how can you impact change and, and affect change? Um, and that could be in your uh, science club. It could be in the local stargazing group. It could be that you're doing research. It could be that you're volunteering at a hospital. It could be that you are trying to get some questions answered and 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 doing your best to 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 get them answered in your own home lab in your garage. Um, So it's going to be different for everyone. And I think what they are looking for are those students who've got curiosity who are trying to get questions answered, and who are trying to positively impact those around them, perhaps through math and science, as well as other things as well. So it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily that you are doing this to the exclusion of other aspects of your humanity. You're doing that in addition to, hey, being a part of the soccer team, or being a part of the track team, or being a part of your wind ensemble. Okay? So Mm -hmm. they're they're looking for students who are going to be doing that and more. You know, these mm-hmm. are highly selective institutions, so they're going to find plenty of students who are, you know, doing research or who are doing that, who are doubling up on math and science and, and, and so forth. And they're looking for uh, probably, you know, those students who are, who, who are doing even more than that and, and, and complementing that with other um, extracurriculars, I should say.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, an example, um, I, I sent a student to MIT a few years ago Absolutely brilliant young man, but, um, you know, that's no given. Does it? So, you know, so are other people. So that's not a given that you're going to get in. And he, I think where he distinguished himself beyond the fact that he was in linear algebra in his senior year in, in high school and, you know, doing what you said, taking all those incredible math and science courses. But he, he was actually self-taught in some more advanced mathematics. He mm-hmm. was one of these uh, nerds, again, use this affectionately, who would update Wikipedia um, you know, and he'd also won an award for uh, one of the best history essays. So, he was a, you know, he was a learned
4: young man. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah and I, I would say that, you know, when when I'm working with students, and you know, if they get into any of those schools, you know, the MIT or Caltech, you know, oftentimes, They're doing a broad range of things. You know, I've had students who, you know, who love computer science, but they also had a love of the environment. And so they were working for clean energy companies programming for that and really having an impact. And then getting together a solar power team to, you know, win a national contest in in terms of uh, solar energy. So, you know, they take their particular love and then they kind of put it to practice in the way that they can, in the way that a high school student can. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that you have to discover to cancer, but you can use things. Uh, oftentimes, as a high school student, to get questions answered to uh, really demonstrate your proficiency in, in something and, and to express your love of math and science in that particular curiosity, whether it's a mm-hmm. job, whether it's a contest, whether it's a research question that you've got, um, or whether it's, you know, when you, within your high school's stargazing um, club, You know, there are a lot of ways to do that and to really share that love with others, see how you can impact the world in a positive way.
3: Okay, great. Well, I think that is a great note to to end on. So thanks so much, Zaragoza.
4: You're welcome. My pleasure, Sally.
3: Okay. All right, everyone, we'll now be taking a short break. And then Val Paradis and I will be discussing the college admission process for students on the autism spectrum.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
2: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back, everyone. Val Paradis and I will now be discussing the college application process for students on the uh, autism spectrum. Welcome, Val Thanks, Sally. It's great to be here. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think there's a lot to discuss regarding applying to college as a student who is on the autism spectrum. And so I was thinking that uh, maybe we'd start with, I want to start by using your considerable expertise. When you're advising students with autism who are applying to college, what is your most important message for them? Like what, what is sort of one of the first or the first thing that you want to emphasize to them? When
5: they're applying for college, uh, I think the most important thing to think about is really uh, how much do you want to take on in that first year, and and hopefully that will help you determine uh, which college or colleges you want to apply to. Um, For many with autism, that transition from high school. And moving into post-secondary options can be a really big, big step. And there are a lot of new moving parts. So to really think about first, you know, are you going to live on campus or are you going to live at home for a bit um, before you move to a campus setting? Um, Are you going to go part-time or full-time? There are all sorts of questions that should be considered, and that should really help determine which college colleges you want to apply to to begin with and then once you start moving into the application process there's the whole process of disclosure when to do it should you do it during application should you do it after you've been accepted and um, that's a whole set of issues and questions that I'm sure we'll be exploring a bit more sally
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely want to get to that. But first, I want to kind of dig a little deeper into what you talked to, what you just mentioned in terms of all the moving parts, um, and sort of what a student needs to consider um, when they're choosing a college. And so I guess the, for me to dig into that deeper, the question that I was hoping you could address is, what are some of the differences between high school and college that a student who's on the spectrum should keep in mind? Like, I mean, the example that I'm really thinking of for this conversation today is if there's a student who's been doing very well in high school, hasn't needed a lot of services or has needed really just minimal services in their last year, um, should they still consider asking for those services in college? you know, and the example I would give you is a, a few months ago, I talked to a student who did not want to disclose to the colleges that he was on the spectrum, um, and he didn't want to avail himself of services when he got there. And when I asked him why, he said, and this is really a quote, he felt better when he could figure things out himself. So I tried to gently point out, I don't want to be the one telling him, no, this is what you have to do, and I, I didn't know this particular young man, but I did try to point out that a lot of students need extra assistance. When they transition to college, so how would you how might you have advised this young man?
5: Um, well, that's such a great example, Sally, because um, that's actually happening again and again all over the country um, when I interact with young people um, on the spectrum headed toward college. And by the way, I'm an individual diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, and i um, I also had my struggles, my of struggles all at college. Um, that was quite a long time ago. But I I just want to say to those who, um, you know, are sort of, um, um, you know, working kind of at the level in high school that you just described, Sally, that, um, you know, it's a really admirable thing and an important thing to want to be sort of like in charge of your own life and your own destiny, you know, as you move um, into college and, you know, you know, you're leaving that high school setting. Um, you want to feel more empowered and independent to be sure. And that's all natural and, um, should be the process and should be what you want. But to actually disclose, um, to the student services office is probably one of the strongest moves you can possibly make, um, to be extremely self-directed and independent in the way uh, that you want to be as a, as a, as a young adult on a campus. Um, and I say that with, um, a lot of urgency because I see too many cases, Sally, where people, um, with autism transition to that first freshman year in college, don't disclose, and suddenly they feel like they've been thrown into the deep end of the s- swimming pool and, um, often have to then, um, interrupt their college education just to get back on track. Um, and think through plans again, and and then along with all of that is just the heartbreak of of sort of what that does to your own self esteem, um, maybe even affect you in in terms of um, developing depression. So really, um, it's a position of strength to um, disclose, and once you've done that um, on campus at the student services office, um, then that puts you in a position of really. Um, as I was saying before, sort of shaping your own destiny and your own future um, in a very empowered way. So I really, really want to stress that that's so critical.
3: Mm-hmm. And really just, I mean, what I tried to phrase to the young man, too, was that if he found he didn't need the services, then he didn't have to use them. But knowing that those services were there, setting himself up to avail himself of them if something happened was a good idea, and then he could always transition away from them.
5: Exactly. Um, Again, you're sort of in control, and it's very, very different from being in a high school setting. For example, if you were receiving special education services in high school, or even on a 504 plan, um, a lot of people in high school probably knew it. You know, even fellow classmates who you wouldn't have wanted to know would maybe know it just because you were in you know a resource room getting extra support or um or you know um, taking a certain class that was you know meant to support your learning differences but um once you're on a campus um you know those kinds of things just sort of um disappear people people don't Kind of know, you know your background, even if you have disclosed in the student services office, um, and so you you just don't have that um, additional potential for being stigmatized the way you were. Um, or perhaps were fearful of being stigmatized while you were in high school. And I think that that's really, really important to understand and know um, before, you know, applying to college and being in college, that it's just going to be very different altogether. And that's also why it's important to think about, um, you know, other things, like how much socially, you know, um, do you want in your in your day to day life? Um, you know, are you going to have a roommate, or are you not going to have a roommate? These are really important questions, and they affect your academic um, performance if you don't plan ahead and think about
3: those things as well. Mm-hmm. And so, what are? I mean, you bring up one uh, example, like you know, will you want a roommate, or maybe will you be better off without a roommate? What are some other resources or specific things? That students need to think about sure. when transitioning well, to college.
5: Sure. if you think about, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, if you if you think about um, autism and being autistic, um, you know, and I say this as a fellow Aspie, um, uh, there are there are really critical aspects of how we live and how we are in the world that um, really have to do with our core characteristics as autistic people and. That usually has to do with um, our social and communication differences. And quite often, really for the majority of majority of us, our sensory differences. So, you know, first to start with the social, um, some of us fatigue very easily when we, ha- when we have a lot of social interaction every day. Um, and so one nice thing about college is that you can actually begin to, again, be more in control of your life and take charge um, by um, having more downtime in your day uh, wherever you might need it. But again, also, are you ready to take on, you know, a full course load and have a roommate at the same time? Possibly a roommate you've never met before and suddenly you're sharing a dorm room with. That's really, really important to think about. Um, if, If you want a roommate, then... You know, think about um, what, you know, what other aspects of your day-to-day life you, you need to really pay attention to in terms of social interactions and being in, um, in seminar rooms and, and everything that happens on a campus, um, and, and really make sure you're making a good plan for yourself so you don't burn out. Um, and then for the sensory differences... Um, you know, for many of us, we have we have sensitivity to different types of lighting, or um, to various types of sounds and noise. And again, what if you have a roommate who likes to, um, you know, play his or her um, stereo, you know, or um, you can't tune out certain types of noises, um, like your your roommate, you know, maybe having a light snore at night or something like that. Um, So you've got to really be prepared to kind of think about those things and advocate for yourself um, really on a day-to-day basis um, to make sure you're taking care of yourself.
3: And I think it's notable here that you're talking a lot about social issues, like, you know, having a roommate, making sure you have enough time and space to yourself, Um, because I think that a lot of families, when I've talked to them, their focus is on whether their student can do the academics, and obviously their student has proven that they can do the academics. That's not really the concern as much as the full transition to college life. So I think I just kind of wanted to emphasize that, that people might not be thinking about the emotional, I mean, every student has an emotional challenge to the greater independence of moving on to college. And so then it sounds like, you know, the sensory issues and communication issues just make it maybe three times as challenging. Is that, am I stating this correctly?
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, if you're functioning quite well and performing well academically, albeit maybe there are some subjects that, you know, you're not as good at, just like most people. Um, um, not being able to take care of yourself and your core experiences of autism in the world day to day, such as the sensory and social differences, if you don't have a method for taking care of that, it will affect your academic performance. Um, and you know, that's where the balance comes in. And so um, other questions that you may want to consider, if you are going to have a roommate, are you going to just close to your roommate, right? And if so, um, how are you going to do that? Because, again, disclosure can put you in a position of tremendous strength. Um, you know, if you disclose, it's almost like you're an ambassador of your own experience. Um, and you're, you're educating others, um, really, to help your own campus culture become more diverse. And so, um, really thinking through that piece, I think, um, at every level is really, really important. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: Okay, great. And so, when a student um, when when a student is looking at colleges and they have a sense of the additional resources that they might need, who should they be talking to? Um, and this is even before they've applied or maybe after they've applied. But um, you mm-hmm. know, who who should they be talking to to find out what kind of resources will be available to them at the college?
5: Um, a good place to start is the student services office. Um, You know, that may have a different name depending on what campus you're on. Um, It's good to find out, too, um, if um, a college has experience supporting students um, with autism or other neurodiversities, and if so, sort of the extent of that support. Um, Some colleges and their student services offices are investing in this more and more, to train their staff, and even um, develop more specific programming um, directly on campus in many, in many instances. Um, so to really check out what might be available um, to you as a student um, can be really, really helpful. Mhm.
3: All right. So we, mm-hmm. I think we've made it clear, uh, and which is good, that it's that students should disclose to student services that they have autism, maybe even before they apply. Uh, there's no downside to that. But then the other question, and maybe even the biggest question that some of the people listening have, is should they disclose to the admission office when they are applying? Will it give them a boost in the admission process? Will it be harmful? Will it be neutral? So what are your thoughts on that? And then I can kind of chime in on that one as well.
5: Mm-hmm. That's a really good question, and it's a very legitimate concern. Um, unfortunately, right now, um, you know, the awareness of inv- what we call invisible disabilities or neurodiversities um, like autism um, aren't um, just fully, fully understood by sort of <coughs> culture. And so um, when you're applying and moving through the application process in the admissions office, um, you really need to do your homework in advance there too. Um, And really this will vary from student to student and family to family, whether you disclose in that process or not. It's it's very similar to seeking employment right now if you're a person on the spectrum. Are you going to, you know? disclosed during your job interview um, or not. And that's really a case-by-case decision. Um, one way to, you know, do your homework, again, is to just find out what is available on campus, um, whether there are students with autism studying there um, um, and what kind of sort of supports are, are already in place, because that will also be an indicator of how well-trained Um, even folks in the admissions office are for understanding. Um, And it could be that you decide, no, I'm not going to disclose, you know, during my application process with admissions. Um, And you might have very good reasons to do that. And then later, once you're accepted, you can disclose and then begin asking for reasonable accommodations and other services that you can avail yourself of.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in general... Mm -hmm. um, I mean, as someone who worked in admissions, and, and I will say that when I worked at admissions, which at this point was, I don't know, 17 years ago or, or 16 or something, um, I wasn't as well educated. But I did know that under the ADA, we weren't allowed to, you know, legally deny someone on the basis of a disability and that autism was going to be considered one of those. But you did, um, w- when I'm uh, advising my own students now, I do sort of worry that, much of the admission process is relatively subjective. And so maybe it'll hurt a student, even if someone's not intentionally doing something illegal. And so my kind of advice in general is, is yes, see what kind of services they have, because if they've got good services, so the admission office is probably well-educated. Um, but then also think carefully about, do you have a story here that shows where disclosing is going to really show your strength. You know, the example that might be a student who didn't disclose, and then once, you know, she was diagnosed um, in her ninth grade year, her grades really went up because she began to get the assistance. Once she had the resources that she needed, she was able to perform academically at the level that, you know, she was actually capable of. So, so that's the kind of situation where I would say definitely you want to disclose because it's going to be to your actually to your advantage. Um, in other situations, yeah, just maybe be very careful and do your research first.
5: Exactly. Um, that's such a great example, Sally, you know, and um, I think that, um, yeah, you know, understanding your own um process in high school and what you experienced is important also if you know if you had a, if you're a leader you know within your community and you've done a lot of work and like the self-advocacy community or advocacy community um, in autism that might be another thing you know that's worth disclosing and should be disclosed if you've if you've you know achieved things um, you know for your own community um, but again, just as you say, it's important to um, really look at, you know, what might what might optimize or, you know, make your application, you know, the very best it can be um, and not put you in a position of potential weakness, if you will, mm-hmm. um, just simply by what others might perceive about you, whether you disclose or don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I think I think also when you're talking to the folks in student services you can ask them because when I've done some research on this some you know some colleges you know, are very clear about whether it's going to help or not. I went up to University of Connecticut. They have an excellent program for students on the spectrum, and they were very clear that it's not going to hurt, but students who are on the spectrum don't get any kind of a boost in the process. But maybe there are colleges where there is actually a boost, but if there is, student services is going to know about it. So, you know, pose the question and don't assume that that boost is going to be there. And and I, I know that, I don't know, I have talked to families who assumed that there would be a boost and that meaning like test scores weren't going to be as emphasized or lower grades were going to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that for a lot of colleges, that's not going to be the case that they're happy and proud to provide, you know, the wonderful services that they have and they want a neurodiversity on their campus, but you're still going to need to achieve the same academic markers as everyone else.
5: That's right. And, you know, um, just uh, sort of as an aside, um, you know there are also other post-secondary options in addition to sort of the, you know the um, the sort of traditional four-year college degree program, which I know we've been sort of focusing on primarily in that process. But for those students out there and their families who are um, really seeking something like um, where um, independent living skills are more emphasized, um, and even feel like that might need to come first before, you know, um, ongoing academic learning. There are new and emerging programs out there, such as First Place Arizona, that are just fantastic as another type of option where actually students there are, are um, studying in a two-year program, certificate program on a college campus. Um, to learn how to live more independently. And some of them then move on to continue their studies in, in a more um, sort of focused academic or vocational way.
3: All right, so that's one great example. And actually on that note, um, do you have any like uh, recommendations of resources, you know, websites or books? I mean, a book that I've used when I've advised my students is uh, the Parents' Guide to College for Students on the autism spectrum. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, Any particular websites or any other resources that you might point a student or family to?
5: Yeah, I have a few resources. Um, Another great book is called Realizing the College Dream um, for Students with Autism and Asperger's Syndrome and the author of that is Ann Palmer. Um, She's a colleague whose work I admire very much and that book is with J- uh, Jessica Kingsley Publishers, um, which is jkp.com on on online. And then um, another really fantastic resource, uh, written by uh, a woman, a young woman with autism, um, who uh, was a college um, graduate and. Um, She wrote a book called A Freshman Survival Guide, um, specifically for her peers on the spectrum. And that's also uh, with Jessica Kingsley Publishers. And then finally, you know, just to get a sampling, I mean, there are more and more colleges um, and options, post-secondary options out there for people um, on the spectrum. Um, And one of the most established and oldest um, college programs. Well, it's a, it's a college, Marshall University, um, but they have uh, programming to really support specifically students with autism. Um, and, and there are many more of those emerging, but Marshall's a great model. And then, as I mentioned before, for those who want to emphasize learning more independent living skills, really, you should check out First Place Arizona. Um, that's at firstplaceaz.org.
3: Okay, great. I think it's wonderful that we were able to give people some additional resources too. Um, so thanks so much, Val. Thanks a lot.
5: Sure. Thanks, Sally.
3: Stick around, listeners. As next, I'll be talking with Gene Mann about summer jobs and paying for college.
2: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, Please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
3: Welcome back, everyone. Jean Mahan will now be answering my questions about summer jobs and paying for college. Welcome, Jean.
0: Hi, Sally. It's great to be here today. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you for coming. Um, So let's, I mean, let's, I'll start with my own story because it's an easy one. When I was in school, I had a summer job um, and it's an easy one and it's a typical one, I think. So I had a summer job, um, you know, before I started college, I had summer jobs actually in between each college year and it definitely helped with some of my school expenses. In fact, my mother was very clear that I was expected to contribute, and a summer job was one of the ways that I was going to do that. So, um, But, you know, that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm old now compared to, uh, compared to these high school students. So with college costs so high, is it even reasonable to expect that students can earn enough money to make a dent in their expenses?
0: So they probably can't earn enough to pay for college like some of us did back in the day, but they can certainly help with their expenses. So, you know, students are going to have book expenses. They might have transportation costs, if they, whether they're commuters or even if they're living on campus. Um, and then there's personal expenses, you know, shampoo and uh, movies and, of course, pizza so you definitely want to have a summer job so that you can use those funds to, to pay those costs. I mean, I think it's absolutely reasonable to expect students to contribute to their education, particularly if their parents are paying all the other costs of tuition. Um, so it's it's definitely possible and certainly should be considered.
3: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you, um, is that something then that like when you work with your own kid or when you've advised people, have you you know, said we expect a certain amount from you? Yes. Like a certain portion? (laughs) Yeah. How specific do you get?
0: So I got pretty specific with my kids, and I told them that if, I have two, and I told them that if they worked in the summer and then decided to buy a big screen TV with their summer earnings, that I would reduce my contribution by the same amount. So, you know, they were pretty on board, and they knew. We had also made it sort of a family affair. You know, we're all in this together, and, you know, we're going to be helping you, and you're going to be helping yourself. So definitely, one of my colleagues here at College Coach has a great story about her dad, you know, every year told them they had a certain amount of money that they had to um and one summer she was running kind of behind even with a second job and he was like you know you can't go back to school unless you make x number of dollars this summer to take care of all those extra expenses that you have and so you know she had to really up her game for the rest of the summer in order to be able to go back so everybody has their kind of their own strategy for this but I think that it's it definitely um makes students appreciate their education more if they've got, um, if they have some ownership of it, and you know, being responsible for your own books and your supplies and that kind of thing is going to give you some of that ownership.
3: Mm-hmm. It also makes you smarter about how you buy your books. My, oh, absolutely. My- <laughs> my my roommates would go out and buy every book on the syllabus and it would be brand new and I would go out and buy only the used copies right. because I knew those were going to sell out so mm-hmm. to me it was worth it to buy them and then I'd ask the teacher how much I really needed them and return any that I didn't actually need so right. I was I was very strategic because I had to pay for my own books so and there's you know. lots of
0: great ways now that we didn't have available to us you know you can rent textbooks now and they're really a fraction of the cost of a new textbook and they make it very easy you know um Amazon does it, Barnes & Noble, Chegg. There's a whole bunch of companies out there. And you can actually even compare prices. So once you have the ISBN number, you can type that in and the different um, rental companies will come up. And they make it super easy. They either give you a return address label or even an envelope and you just put it in the mailbox. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. But um, one example that when my daughter was in college, she had to take a theology class and her roommate was in the same class with her, and there were six or seven books that they had to buy. And so they bought them used from another classmate. They shared them for that semester, and that did require a little bit more coordination as to, you know, who's going to need which book when. And then at the end of that semester, they sold them to somebody who was taking the course in the fall. So, you know, maybe a little bit extreme, but you sometimes you need to get a little creative if the money's coming out of your own pocket.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. And you, yeah, yeah. Are there particular jobs that you would suggest? I mean, I know that during the recession, it was a little harder, just as it was harder for college graduates to get jobs, it was harder for, you know, summer jobs weren't as available as they yeah. had been.
0: I, I say take whatever you can get. I mean, you know, if you can get something in an area of interest, all the better. But a lot of times, you know, You know, Wall Street isn't going to hire an 18 year old to be their CFO or something. So you might have to take a job scooping ice cream. You might be working at a retail store, a coffee shop. Um, one of my kids did landscaping one summer. He worked at a party rental company another year and he was, you know, um, putting up tents and that kind of thing. So, you know, whatever you, um, whatever you can find that's going to make you some money, do it. It's a short period of time. You know, at the most, it's going to be four months. It's not like you're going to make a career out of landscaping. Maybe you are, but for most kids, you're not, or, you know, flipping burgers or something like that. So it's definitely a short period of time. I always found that my kids were so excited to come home from school for the summer and work, and they were really excited to go back to school at the end of the summer and not work so much. So (laughs) it's a really great way to, um, you know, kind of get used to what work life is all about and then appreciate your back to school so much more when the summer is over. Um, Absolutely. Some jobs really lend themselves to uh, saving a lot of money. For example, if you're working at a residential camp, a few of my college coach colleagues have either done that themselves or had kids that do it. But a lot of times those camps will only pay a lump sum at the end of the summer. So clearly you can't be spending that money all through the summer months. And not only that, they're providing free room and board. You don't have to worry about transportation because you're there. So, you know, your student is going to spend very little if they're at a camp job. Um, And obviously, you don't have the the transportation issues. I mean, one summer, there were four people in my household, me and my husband and our two kids, and everyone had a job, and we had two cars. So it required a lot of coordination every Sunday night to figure out who needed to be where at what time, and, you know, sometimes one of us rode a bike to work, um, just you know, to free up a car. So, you know, certainly residential jobs mean that transportation is one of the things that you don't have to worry about. And then, of course, your child is away all summer, so you don't have to see them oversleeping or, you know, staying out too late or anything like that. Um, (laughs) Some kids really like to work at, you know, large chain, either restaurants or stores because, you know, maybe they go to school, say, in Los Angeles and they live in Chicago and they're working at you know, Chili's or Bath and Body Works, and a lot of times if they're good employees, they can keep moving back and forth from location to location. So their, you know, home base will recommend them to the local um, chain, you know, outlet near their, ha- near their school. So it enables them to maybe, you know, keep a job and keep using, you know, for the whole four years but just in different locations. So that's mm-hmm. a kind of a big plus too.
3: Absolutely. And so, if a student receives need based financial aid, um, will having a job reduce their eligibility for those grants or scholarships? It shouldn't because um, most students.
0: If they earn less than $6,400 a year, and that's the amount for 2017, it won't have any effect on their um, eligibility for any need based financial aid they have. If they're earning more than $6,400 in the summer, I want to know where they're working because I want to work there too. And, uh, you know, so for most kids, it's not going to have any impact on their financial aid eligibility, but it just has such a really positive impact on their, you know, on their bottom line as far as, you know, contributing to their education and just getting some really great experience.
3: Mm -hmm. And one thing I wanted to kind of add in, we only have about uh, less than a minute left, but um, one thing that I wanted to add in is that I think sometimes students think, oh, it's not worth getting a job, like students who, let's say, they don't need to contribute, their Uh families are in a really fortunate position. But even even a job at McDonald's is a job on your resume. It was really noticeable to me that my friends who came from very wealthy families and so had never worked when they were in college they i had a much harder time getting jobs right. upon graduation than i did and I, you know some of it was because you know because i had to work I was going to look for jobs, and so I became an intern. You know, I was a tour guide and an intern in the admission office, but also it was easier for me to get those jobs because I'd worked as a waitress or in Mm -hmm. a bookstore. I had an employment history, so I think people should knock that as well.
0: No, I think that's really valuable. You can at least go to an employer and say, hey, yeah, I have worked for somebody else. I know what it's like to work cooperatively. I know what it's like to work maybe at the bottom of the... The rung, you know, and, you know, jobs like waitressing, um, busing, uh, working at, you know, retail, you really have to learn to deal with all kinds of people in those jobs. And that is such valuable experience that you can take into any career because you're always going to be dealing with different kinds of people. And if you started learning, you know, coping skills early on, you're going to be more successful you know, as an adult worker. So I think I just love summer jobs. I think they're the greatest thing that ever happened. And, you know, it gives kids a, an opportunity to learn about, you know, finances. Their fam- you know, hopefully their families can help them with budgeting over the summer um, so that they know how much they can spend so that they'll have enough for the fall. I think it also helps kids to learn, you know, what do I like and what do I don't like. My son worked uh, at his college during the school year writing news releases for the athletic department and although it was an easy enough job he hated being inside all the time and so mm-hmm. he realized that for him you know he needed a job where he had more flexibility to be outside so it's really great that you know gives kids a chance to see what they like and what they don't like
3: sure so i we have to go now unfortunately yeah. jean so thank you so much you're welcome uh- And thank you to Zaragoza and Val Paradis. Next week, I'll be in the host chair again. And one of my guests and I will be discussing what a liberal arts education is, which I think is a great topic as very few people seem to understand it. I'll also be holding office hours regarding what students can be doing now to develop their list of colleges and talking with a finance colleague about what parents can do now that their student has already deposited at the college of their choice. And finally, I want to remind you that every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download them for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find all our past shows, um, including last week's show, when we discussed the statistics of why applying to more highly selective colleges doesn't get you in, and whether trying to game the system by applying into an easier major at college makes sense. Um, Also or less if you like our show be sure to rate us on itunes it only takes a moment of your time and it's absolutely free and don't forget we're here every thursday at 4 p.m eastern time 1 p.m pacific time check us out
2: thank you for tuning in to getting in a college coach conversation hosted by elizabeth heaton